vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Mmm, my belly is full of sausage dogs and you're in your tactical turtleneck. <laughs> Let's have a fucking show. 60th show. Yep. I'm full of situ- situational awareness, which cannot be taught. <laughs> but, you know, before we get into anything else, guess what? Good news, everyone. Oh, shit. We have a new Patreon backer. Oh, wah, 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 wah. Let us thank our new Damian Wayne backer, Giorgio Sergioli. Giorgio, thank you. Hey, it's my boy. We've been friends for a long time. I have no idea who it is, but he's my new best friend. You're all like family to us. Especially the ones who are family. Yes. Uh, because which is a, a good segue into this week's episode. Uh, since this week we do have a Patreon request, and that Patreon request happens to be from uh, one Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, who you know, in case you haven't figured out from all those smoochy sounds at the end of every episode, uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be Will's decidedly better half. Who, <laughs> Hello, right. Who happens to be here with us as well? Oh yeah, welcome, welcome, welcome! Great to be back. So Abigail's request was specifically for the Legend of the Dark Knight arc Venom, and so we're we're doing Venom, and we are theming that along with other stories of the Dark Knight and the war on drugs. Um, da dum dum. Oh yes, I figured. Uh, da dum. Dun, dun. There would definitely be some, some dragnet talk in here uh, with some of these, specifically the latter two. We're, we're going to get there. Uh, but we're, we're going to start off with the request, which is Venom. This is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 16 to 20. The writer is Denny O'Neill, with layouts by Trevor Von Eden, pencils by Russell Braun, and inks by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Colors are by Steve Olaf, letters by Willie Schubert, and edited by Andrew Helfer and Kevin Dooley. Cover dates are March to July of 1991. The death of a young girl he feels like he could have saved sends Batman down a dark path. Taking a designer drug to improve his strength, Batman falls to its side effect, losing his control. In the end, he must face the withdrawal to become himself again and find the men who made the drug. Uh, one just cool little thing to note amongst those creators, I mean, we've we've read plenty of Danny O'Neill, uh, but Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who is inker on this book, even if you don't know it, you have seen Jose Luis Garcia Lopez art because Lopez designed the style book for DC Comics in the 80s. Every sort of generic licensing image of Batman from the 80s through at least the aughts, if not to today, is based off of that Lopez style guide. It's a just a cool little fact. And it's it's the Batman you can picture in your mind. Yeah, yeah. So Venom, as 
I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast or anything Batman knows is probably better known as the drug that empowers Bane. But this is the origin of that drug. This was created long before Bane, and that was sort of retconned in to Bane's origin. I don't know if it's technically retconning because it's just taking, it's not retconning because it's taking this story and then it was used in Bane's creation. Bane at least has a much more advanced uh, version of the drug because it doesn't melt his brain. Not until he kind of ODs on it towards the end of Nightfall, but that was sort of a, Bane has a longer burn on his path of using Venom as a drug addiction, but like any addict, he gets there eventually. Right. And I, you know, when we reread that second half of Nightfall, it's like, wow, suddenly he goes from, you know, in part 18 sitting in a smoking jacket and swilling brandy to in the next one, like must find drug. It was a real quick descent for Bane in that one here. It's a real quick descent, but it happens much faster to Bruce. I don't know if we should start by discussing the, what I feel is the main flaw of Venom as a story, because there is a giant flaw at the heart of this story well let's hear it i know i'm on pins and needles like this is like are you going to um explain the death star plans to us where's the no the the thing with that bothers me about venom and this is something that i'm pretty sure i read somewhere and i wish i could remember who said it but it's one of those things where i i read it and it's like it immediately just makes so much sense in part three, after Bruce has, you know, become a complete addict, he locks himself in the Batcave for 30 days. And while there's an understanding that there's this Hitchcockian sort of thing of Alfred just hearing Batman, you know, through the intercom of what he's going through, you don't really see what Bruce is going through. So it should be this central part of his arc of him wrestling with his addiction is completely off camera and it undercuts what he is experiencing here. You know, to me, I think it's already interrupted. That that speaks to the larger, just kind of pacing problems of the story. Like, so the child sissy dies and then immediately, like immediately, you get really, really creepy vibes from scientist dad, like immediately. And Bruce doesn't pick up on it. And he's just like, uh, Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. Your kid died. That's very sad. I, I don't know why you're not really taking it all that sadly, but okay. And then it just moves on from there. Like the first issue, it feels like should have been two issues. Once you get to Santa Prisca, it just, slows down to this slog that feels like three issues should have been one issue. Like there are lots of pacing problems and just weird story beats throughout this thing. And I think that's absolutely one of them. I will play a little bit of devil's advocate here, which like first, this was my request. Obviously downstairs in my sewing room, I have these issues framed on my wall because I really love this art. That's not to say that there's a couple of plot holes you could drive a truck through quite safely. 
But just playing a bit of devil's advocate on those two points, which one, I will completely agree. There's an issue at the back that you could just drop that part of the storyline and make that two issues of the back three and give me another issue between two and three or like extending out three. I will completely admit that, that there are some pacing issues. But just to the two prior points, one, I think you have to take it in a grain of salt because this whole story is about Batman and he's battling addiction, which from the get-go is very un-Batman-like because I don't think Batman would sort of fall into that trap as much when I'm reading this. But I really want to see a story with Batman dealing with some of these topics and dealing with them in a personal light. So I kind of have to take a little bit of grain of salt of just like, well, you know, some things have to happen and he's probably going to have to do this otherwise because Batman would just be like, no, this is a terrible idea. And then also, I like that they don't show him in the Batcave reeling with the addiction. I like that it's removed. And to me, that's like putting my, what I think up in my head as I'm reading that book will always be better than anything that could be on the page, at least for me personally. And I do like the touch of Alfred being there with like the intercom. I don't know if you've ever dealt with somebody who's in the throes of this. There's just like that moment where you're like, I wanna help them, but I can't. I need to just sit on my butt right now and hope they have the strength to get through this because that's all you can do. If I answer that intercom and I say something, I might derail him from his path of getting over this, which again, just really speaks to me. And I like that of Alfred being there listening on the intercom and him having that battle of like the strongest person he knows in the world is still dealing with this. And all he is is support to Batman. He's there as like the backup when Batman's back in the Batcave and wanting to like, oh, I'm going to help you. I'm going to mend your wounds. And like Alfred's battle is he has to step away. And he's like, I can't be a part of this. Like this is literally, he's in my domain where I get to help Batman. But with this thing, I have to just sit here and listen to the intercom. Which again, that might be more headcanon of what I put in. And maybe that fills out some of the pacing issues, which like the same thing with the doctor. Every time I've read this and I was surprised when I reread it, that it doesn't mention of like, oh, well, clearly the doctor's given himself something. And that's why he's okay with his daughter dying. Like that he's just like, he made an adjustment with himself. And that's like later discussed how he's like, well, I'm not an addict. And I- Wait, wait, not not just that his daughter died, but that he orchestrated her death. Yeah, he's jolly, he's good. He's like, he made his own chemical adjustment. To go off something you said, I have less of an issue with Bruce falling for this at this point in his career. This is- year 1.25 jim is still captain dent is an ada in the first issue and after the nine months of the beginning of the story the three months where bruce is going out rampaging and the six months after he you know has to go through recovery he's then district attorney dent so we're real early in batman's career and it would have been Maybe too heavy-handed to say it out loud, but I had the feeling this is the first time Bruce failed. Mm. This is the first time someone as innocent as Sissy died that he couldn't save. And the the flashes he keeps seeing of her dying face throughout that first issue 
makes me a little more forgiving of Bruce going down that path and taking yeah. the venom. If this was even a year two era Batman, I would be much less forgiving of that. Because at this point, A, Alfred is the only one who knows. So we're pre-Leslie Tompkins knowing, which happens prior to year two, somewhere in between year one and year two. There's no Robin. So I think I can forgive that a little more in this case. But I, I generally liked this story. I agree. Oh, believe me, there are absolute pacing issues. Yeah. But A, I think the art here is excellent. Oh, some of the best facial expressions you'll ever see in a comic book. Yes. Russ Braun is an excellent artist. Best known at this point, probably for the back half of Garth Ennis's The Boys after Derek Robertson stepped away. Braun finished The Boys and the expressions, the fight choreography is marvelous. Kind of the opposite of Robertson. Very strange. Robertson, whose faces are very putty-like. These are very clear, clean faces. Interesting. But they, huh. they both draw bodies very similarly. They both draw big, big guys. Like If you look at Robertson's Billy Butcher and Braun's Billy Butcher, even if the faces are somewhat different, they are very built the same way. I was just going to say, touching on the art, one of the things I love about this run, and I totally think like the art sells the moments, getting to see not just we have a nice little arc of Bruce Wayne going out during the day and him doing some detective work which I like but I love seeing Batman in the bat suit during the day which I think is just it's one of my favorite things and I think it's issue four when he's in the tree in the jungle and I just I love how that's drawn I love the idea of the challenge of right so the picture I have of Batman is it's night and he's in a city <laughs> and it being like, well, let's remove both of those things and put Batman during the day or surrounded by trees. So I really like, I love the art in this and I love, especially when he's sort of, he know like he's on his path and he knows he's messed up and he has that guilt of what he knows using the venom is wrong. So he stops wearing the bat suit, which I love all of the drawings of him in that trench coat, I love those. They look so good. And back to the facial expressions, the grin he has when he's in the trench coat, you hit it on the head. The facial expressions, I feel, sell so many of the panels in this. The laughing Batman, when he's in the suit, when he throws his head back, this maniacal laughter yeah. is disturbing. And narratively, I think that's a good section because we really see that Batman has to be an intellectual character or else it's just Punisher. I think issues one, two, and five are generally very strong. I, as I, I have that issue with three and issue four is sort of superfluous padding. Although... It's been a long time since we've been able to do this segment. Shark, Shark Watch! Yes! Cover of issue four. Big old shark fighting Batman. Whole sequence of Batman fighting sharks. I, which, 
I will argue again as like I love this run. It has everything. It's got Batman. It's got great choreography, and he fights a shark. Like, what more do you want from your Batman? I'm not saying it's a force that's like a bad comic. It just could mostly be lifted out of this story, and we would not miss much. No, we would. Saying that four is padding to me is it's not just padding. It's I was getting something I was really enjoying. And then I got a bunch of padding and it's like, well, why couldn't I just have more of what you were giving me a moment ago? Like, can we extend that, extend three out for two issues? And I think this would just be improved all around. I will admit that. It would have been an improvement if we had seen more of a parallel between Bruce fighting the addiction and Timmy Slaycroft, the son of the general succumbing to it and these experiments that they're doing because aside from porter the scientist behind venom he's working with a retired general who the dude might as well be talking about precious bodily fluids yeah i did like and i just discovered this on my reread they basically give porter credit for inventing crack cocaine i thought that was really neat didn't, didn't see that coming. <laughs> and just as the back half, I think Will mentioned it briefly, is set on Santa Prisca. So this sets up not just Venom being forbidden, but why the Santa Priscans had access to it. And it also, basically, the, the fighting the sharks there, I think the last time we had a shark watch was when Bane was fighting sharks back in Vengeance of Bane. So that sets up that little bit of Santa Priscan geography as well, that you can throw somebody off a cliff and they fight sharks. Uh, Although I will say biology point of order, I don't think shark fins are sharp. I don't know if they're sharp. They are, I believe sharks hides are sandpapery. So I don't think if it's cutting, but it will like great, but I might be wrong. I'm not a biologist. Uh, if any of you listeners are biologists, feel free to uh, to ta- challenge our assumptions. But the, it specifically says that the shark fin cuts him. And I don't think that's how fins work. Well, I mean, thematically, it would be a little bit harder to fit in. The shark fin roughly brushes past him enough to tear his flesh. I mean, it might just be easier, like, cut him. Like, I mean, I you get the point. Which, on the subject of... It cutting him. I love how the Batsuit is drawn in this series. I love his motions with the cow. There's a couple of panels where he's holding the cow. And again, it's the cow doing the thing where it's like, sometimes it's firm and sometimes it's completely soft. I love the cover art of the cow when it's on the little mantle. I believe it's issue three when he's in the chair with the long beard. And I also like how it's in this. He, it's not body armor. It's not plates. It's like you see him lifting up the shirt and it's folding. I like my ba- I like my Batman like a ninja. I like him like he's just that good. There's also the moment when he deadlifts the refrigerator and throws it out the window. Batman the smash. With the seams on the costume tear. And just the I don't know if it I consider it a splash page. Technically I think it's two panels. 
but of the fridge going out and the brick in the side of the building then it lands on the car, that is a really pretty page. I can forgive so many of those truck-sized plot holes when it's just like, that was a nice moment of just like, yeah, that looks good. Those bricks look nice. Yeah. Also, I don't know if this was in the script or if it was just a touch that Braun or Von Eden, because I, you know, since Von Eden did layouts, trust me, if you look at Trevor Von Eden's art, the layouts must have been very rough because this is very much a Russ Braun looking book. But there's a scene at the beginning of issue two after Bruce comes in from being trench coat and fedora man and beating up some junkies. He was told that it's one pill a day and you see him taking two and it's never mentioned. It's not drawn, you know, attention and dialogue, but it is just this subtle moment. It's like you see him obviously knock out two pills and pop them. And it's like, I don't know if that was in the script or if that was just a touch, but it's like that's good work when it comes to how an addiction hits people. Right. Like. I feel, especially compared to some of the other books that we will discuss coming up, how this portrait, there's so many little things in this to me that's just like, that is what addiction, like, yes. Like that is nail on the head, which I believe, I don't know if this is urban legend or if it's fact that O'Neill was struggled with alcoholism, which totally fits that this whole thing's an allegory for alcoholism. And it's like, so much of this just to me feels like that's somebody who's gone through this and dealt with it. The things of him being like, he thinks he has more pills left and he looks at the bag and realizes it's empty. Such a small little thing of it's like, seems illogical. Like, well, how would you not know that you ran out? But it's like, no, he like, cause he's wrapped up in the addiction. I believe you are correct about O'Neill. He also wrote the Green Lantern, Green Arrow story where it turned out Speedy was addicted to heroin. And that has a very different withdrawal sequence with Black Canary more or less holding him and being there for him physically while Oliver has gone out to just beat up the dealers because Oliver can't deal with the emotion of the person he was supposed to be taking care of being addicted, which is a very Oliver sort of way of dealing with things. Uh, we could ask Josh Wheel about that, and I'm sure Josh would have thoughts on Oliver, the wayward guardian on that particular point. I'll check in with the New York Times uh, obituary on Denny O'Neill. As a writer and editor, Mr. O'Neill oversaw Frank Miller's work on Daredevil and took over writing Iron Man. He delved into the repercussions of the alcoholism of Tony Stark, the superhero's alter ego, and the temporary transfer of the character's armor from Stark to another character, James Rhodes. Mr. O'Neill gave Stark's struggles a personal twist based on his own addiction. He considered himself a recovering alcoholic. There's a story, which again, if listeners, if this is false and you're going to call in, don't. I don't want to hear it. I mean, like this, don't ruin this for me. Um, I want to say he talks about this on Kevin Smith's, I think it's like episode 61 or 62 of Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman podcast a decade ago when it was actually a podcast about Batman and not current pop culture. And when Kevin Smith was still fat. I know. The podcast, it lost its touch. But I believe he tells, Danny O'Neill tells a story in that of he was like struggling with drinking and he kept winding up in a clinic 
like to detox from alcohol because listeners, if you don't know this, there are two things that when you detox from can kill you. One is heroin. The other is alcohol. Be careful. Drink responsibly. That he just kept showing up there and somebody had like died in the bed. And he was like, well, this bed's dirty. And the doctor just told him like, I can't deal with you right now because you're already dead. I need to focus on the people who actually I can save. And like this really interesting story of him like talking about how he was an alcoholic and would, and not to get into addiction. I just love this story so much because to me it captures addiction. And I made the mistake of reading it first. And then I read the books we're going to get into after it. And I was like, hmm, this is a little on the nose and not really, it doesn't really seem as strong. I read this last because I think I kind of knew. I, 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 I'm the one who's read all three of these stories. The other two stories are about Batman fighting drugs. This is about Batman fighting addiction. Yeah. This is about this is a personal struggle versus a societal problem and this is out of our three stories this is the one that's probably not uh for lack of a better word judgmental question mark it's by far the least there is this is not judgmental no which i would argue again going back to your point of the other sort of the war on drugs this is a war on the emotional tolls of addiction. And that I feel is, again, coming from my <laughs> things, that it's not just saying, hey, drugs are bad. It's saying that addiction is a very painful thing that can affect anybody. And that is the problem. Whereas the other ones are just like the box texts about the war on drugs and how marijuana became illegal. I was like, oh, that's nice to know. That's good. Like this was very forceful. Subtle as a fart in church, some of these other stories. But I think since we're talking about the other stories, maybe it's time. That must mean it's time to put Batman Venom on the big board. We currently have 177 stories on the big board. Number one is Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of the Dark Knight. Down at number 30 is Sleigh Ride. The Joker and Tim Drake take a joyride on Christmas story. At number 60 is Made of Wood, the Batman Green Lantern, Golden Age Green Lantern team up. Coming in at 69, it's Batman number 234, Half and Evil. Smash and grab, Harvey smash and grab down at number 90 is the first batman the story of thomas wayne wearing a batman costume at 120 is batman overdrive the all ages graphic novel down at 150 is the harley and ivy miniseries and all the way down to the bottom 177 still batman white knight 32 episodes strong wow Yep. So first question or first comparison point. I think this is well above the other O'Neill Legends of the Dark Knight arc we have on here, which is Shaman down at 136. Yes. 
that story is strange. This story is strange, but this one's got more substance to it. And is less problematic. There's a couple of moments here with Consuela, the young woman that Timmy Slaycroft gets involved with that are a little cringy. Duh, she's she's just in there to be fridged. Yeah, precisely. But some of the stuff in there, General Slaycroft makes some horrible comments about her, but that's very much to establish him as a complete ugly American. So it's an understandable point. Yeah, there was a there was going to be a narrative problem, like just showing him kicking a dog. So they just they just threw that stuff in there. Okay, then the next point of comparison, I do not believe this is above Vengeance of Bane up at 44. I think we're close with Vengeance of Bane. I was looking earlier and thinking about Bloodstorm, and I I think it's above Bloodstorm, and I think it's above Hush. Okay, I I can see above Hush. Bloodstorm is also a story of Batman fighting addiction. Is that why you and is that where Bloodstorm came in for you? Uh no, it's just there at 50. Okay. Um, yeah, because I'm trying to think. But that's a good comparison. It is, and that's one where you do see his struggle more than you do here, because that he's struggling to fight the addiction the entire story. But I can see this being above that. So that actually puts us in a range between 44 and 50. That's a pretty good, good range. I think this has more substance than Birth of the Demon. It does. Because I was just going to say Birth of the Demon is just like uh, Rambo and not much. That's there. No, you're that's Son of the Demon. Birth of the Demon ah. is the origin of Rachel Ghoul. Ah. Which is good and is beautiful. That's got that painted Nornbray Fogel art. That's right. But I still think I could say safely put this above that. This is going to be a, a weird comparison in some ways, but I don't put it above Batman and Robin and Howard at 47. That is, while a completely different sort of arc, that is very much a story you know, you get a good character arc there for Damien and for Howard and even a little bit for Bruce, learning that he has to spend time with his son as father and son, not just as Batman and Robin. Damien and Howard both need to learn that being the best and being perfect isn't the thing you have to strive for. I like the character arcs there. And while the character arc here of Bruce struggling with addiction is one that many people have dealt with it doesn't sing as much because it feel i feel like even if you know you don't see that bruce fighting the addiction part it feels like there is some part of his arc that isn't completely in this book yeah so you want to go above black and white volume three or below above i think this goes right below batman and robin and howard Sweetheart, can you live with this being uh, 48? Yeah, I can live with that. Okay. I want to be able to come to bed tonight. Well, you guys are updating your list. Just three things that did always bother me about this comic for the listeners so we don't have dead air. One, 
When he cuts Alfred loose from the two pillars before he fights the shark, he uses a pocket knife, not a battering. Why does he just have a little flimsy pocket knife in his utility belt? Always bothered me. Number two, he grows a lot of facial hair in three day, in 30 days, like a lot. And it's facial hair, like unsung power of Batman is he can get a beard that's longer than his like actual hair growing after 30 days. Always bugged me. Third, the guy names his daughter Sissy. And it's like, okay, I mean, now we, there's a connotation with that name. But that is, at one point, that was the name. Then later, he's on the balcony talking to the other guy, making fun of the guy's son. And they're like, yeah, he's a sissy. And it's like, you named your daughter that. Is that supposed to be like a barb or something or like an undertone? But the whole thing of her being named that and then that comment always just, every time I've read this, has derailed me for like five minutes of just like, is that supposed to be something? Is that like supposed to be like subcontext or is it just like a coincidence? Just don't name your kid sissy, even if it's a girl. I I, I, th- I think that's a that was a nickname, I think. But that's what Bruce called. My, my point is it's just one of the things that it's like you're walking through the story and you stub your toe. And you're like, that's not the worst thing in the world. It's okay. But it is a little derailing. Yeah, like uh, uh, Sissy Spacek, for example. Her name is actually Mary Elizabeth. Yeah, she's the only one. One other sissy is out there besides her. None that I can think of. Anyway. Our second story of the night is Leaves of Grass. This is Batman Shadow of the Bat, numbers 56 to 58. The writer is Alan Grant. Pencils by Dave Taylor. Inks by Stan Woke. Colors by Pamela Rambo and Android Images. Letters by Bill Oakley and edited by Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Cover dates are November of 96 to January of 97. A new strain of super-concentrated marijuana is on the streets of Gotham. Who is behind it? And why have they broken Poison Ivy out of Arkham? This story is fucking weird. Oh, is it ever. Uh, First question I gotta ask. Did this uh, Swamp Thing stuff happen in some larger story and this is a recap? Or is this just balls out weird shit that they made up for this book? That was the final arc of the Vertigo Swamp Thing ongoing. Ah, very good. Written by a very young pre-selling out to Hollywood on everything Mark Miller. Like his first, (laughs) this was his first big thing like he and morrison started writing swamp thing together they did the first arc or so as a team because they were a writing team with miller is morrison's apprentice for a little while and then he finished out the run and this is a rarity at this point referencing a vertigo storyline in a mainstream dc book this was a period where the twain met very rarely this Ah. reference dream of the endless appearing in a couple issues of morrison's justice league not much else constantine was off the board swamp thing was pretty much off the board when they were vertigo characters it it was weird i was pleasantly surprised i had not read that stuff when i read this story back in 96 97 so i was like oh that's that last arc of swamp thing Ah, I know that. 
Okay, good. Uh, I'm glad that that was part of some larger context and not just a, a fever dream that I had while I was reading this. Nope. Can I just, like, if we could have a segment, and this is just, we can we can pin this segment if I'm ever on again, that it's time for Abigail's feminist rant. Because I have some things to say about this book, and I would just like to get them off my chest as I was driving an hour to and an hour home from work, still thinking and upset about this book and these three stories. First off, I understand that these are older books. The female with the most agency in the three stories we'll be discussing tonight is Sissy who dies in a closet in a sewer. (laughs) She has the most agency of any female in any of these stories. And reading this, it's like, okay, going into this, I can tell from the title, hey, if they're going to do some marijuana, it's drugs. I knew it was drugs because I was told that that's what all these stories would be about because I had picked them. Hey, Poison Ivy. That might be something interesting there, that Poison Ivy's behind stuff. And literally, it just gets worse. And every time I think that it's trying to pull back from the jaws of just like, what the hell am I reading? It's just like, no, we're doubling down. Which like, first off, right off the get-go, why is Poison Ivy in this? She's literally in this so she can have a rant about how she hates men, which then the weird narrator of this is like digging into it of like, she just hates men. That's a little disappointing. I'm a huge fan of the Harley Quinn animated. Lake Bell is, could be the Poison Ivy I love the most, her portrayal of Poison Ivy in that cartoon. I know that's separate. But rewatching that and then seeing this Poison Ivy, it's like, what, what's going on? A, you don't care about the environment. You have no agency. You're here and you're like, oh, so she's going to do some stuff. Oh, no, it's the guy who made her and the guy's telling her what to do. And it's like, oh, that's a little disappointing. Maybe this will come back. And then it's like, well, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse so we can have plant sex and I can have a kid. And it's like, she's like, sold. Why not? I don't know why I need money. Don't know why there's the weird make it rain panel where she's all gleeful with a bunch of dollar bills around her as she's about to have sex. And I just, why? Because that was Poison Ivy's character before 1999. Don't read any Poison Ivy before No Man's Land because that was Poison Ivy's character before Batman the Animated Series and that was brought into the comics around the time of No Man's Land. Every Ivy story is Ivy is much, it has nothing to do with the environment except for a little bit in the post-crisis origin story by Neil Gaiman, where it does tie into Woodrow and the green, but even then the suicide squad stuff, all the Batman villain stuff, she is about manipulating men. She is not an environmental character until she becomes part plant during no man's land. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's that that is not unsurprising because that is who this character was at this point in their evolution. History is very mean to women. It's not fun (laughs) from the lens of a girl. I will just make one more comment, and this I feel is inexcusable. I have seen Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy cosplay pornos that have better costume design than Poison Ivy's costume design in this. It is a leotard with some frilly green stuff on the top. Again, that was Ivy's costume from 
60 something till here. The cut is slightly different, but it is basically that costume from 19 from her first appearance through No Man's Land. Okay, this concludes Abigail's feminist rant, which again, the bottom line is history is disappointing to look at from the lens of a woman. We can continue now. Aha, now we come to Will's mansplaining segment where I'm going to tell my wife why she's wrong. Okay, go. I wasn't, <laughs> I don't think I was mansplaining. I was simply giving no, the context no, no, of no, not at all where Ivy, you know, it's just like I'm not saying any of those things are right. I'm saying that you're reading oh, this. No, and I'm in no way. Again, you can correct me on the history. It just right. disappoints my, okay. my grimace is just it disappoints me in my soul. Yeah. Not so much as I'm upset with you telling it to me. I mean, I think it would be very interesting in 20 years, people reading Harley stories in 20 years and then going back and right. reading the the first Harley Quinn, the Carl Kessel, Terry Dodson Harley series or the Batman the Adventures comics or even watching Batman the Animated Series and this not being a character they recognize. Which is also just so true, which I guess maybe this is a good thing that it's like things are progressing, but the new 52 run of Supergirl and the new 52 run of Batgirl, I love so dearly just because it's Supergirl. I know we're getting off of Batman for a moment, but it's Supergirl and she has agency. She's like, I don't even know if I want to be a hero. Like those first three issues of that new 52 run where she's in space and she's like, can I just hold my breath a long time? Like, I don't know what's going on. And it's like, so intriguing to me that she's not just a clone of Superman who happens to be female. And then the new 52 Batgirl where it's, there's, I think it's issue four. It's her talking about how like, yeah, she stole Bruce's costume and like his emblem, but she was always herself. And like, I love that so much. I am aware that if I look farther in the history of those two characters, it's not quite as empowering from their origins. Yeah, well, introduce Abigail to Corey and let Corey talk to Abigail about those Silver Age Supergirl stories. I'm sure Corey has feelings. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to my dear husband who's going to do some mansplaining and potentially sleep on the couch. What do you have to say? Uh, no, I was just doing a bit. Oh. Just for a little more beyond the synopsis context here. So yeah, there's this new high potency strain of marijuana on Gotham that dealers are selling for half the price of the, you know, standard marijuana. And it turns out that it's Jason Woodrew, the Floronic man, Floro, who is putting it out there. Woodrew is the man who created Ivy, the one who experimented on her. And every Woodrew and Ivy story in the long run is a story about agency. Because Woodrow is this embodiment of what took Ivy's agency away. He's the villain in the most recent arc, or the first arc of the new Poison Ivy series. And by the time this podcast posts, uh, Armand Babu, previous guest and fellow writer of Comics XF, and my second not so bat chat, our bat adjacent book column will be up and we talk about Woodrow and Ivy and agency but very specifically in this when in the Swamp Thing arc where Woodrow who is pretty much a plant man at this point is beheaded 
his body grows back out of marijuana. And so he is basically a walking weed plant who is stoned and giggly all the time and wants to conquer the world by getting everyone high. It's there's shades of Timothy Leary in there very much. And it's an utterly surreal concept. And you really don't get what the comic is trying to say about marijuana until the very end where you have a grumpy doctor come along and say, Oh, uh, marijuana is uh, it's got some good qualities and it could be actually be a medicinal drug, but you you stoners just keep abusing it. This book is all over the place in its message. Because yes. it seems like Jim Gordon is just like, well, we should just friggin' legalize it because people are just gonna take it anyway. So it would be better if we could deal with it that way. Bruce. We saw this in Anarchy in Gotham. When Alan Grant is writing Batman with social issues, Batman is the grumpiest old man. Who He's like Reagan-esque of just like, I've got a solution for this. Right, which is strange because our final story has at least a somewhat more nuanced reason why Bruce is against drugs. Here, it's just like, no, it's just not the way it is. It's like Bruce Wayne, Batman, extra legal vigilante who bends every possible legality you need a better reason for him to be against something than it's against the law but again the message is just all over the place and it would be one thing if the thing is consistently reefer madness but you get basically normal's talking points in the book too uh there's this one section where you know they they accuse uh the term yellow journalism as as a uh, arising from marijuana you know moral panics that's simply not true no i i i googled that and the best place like i can find associating that is like pro pot web pages so i think that's some weird messaging in that community i really think that alan grant is a pro pot guy he's just like i wish you kids would just be less open with it or something knowing grant's politics he would probably have been pro-legalization or at least decriminalization but it's weird and ending the note on tim drake narc is not great i mean it's a very 80s and 90s lack of nuance of drugs and Oh my God, the sheer number of weird names for marijuana that we get in this book. Definite episode title. And I usually try to be to subtly more work the episode titles in here. But this one, the line when Batman is talking to Woodrow about the drugs and says, quote, super skunk in Gotham. It's like, okay, no human being in reality addresses marijuana as skunk that is something out of pop culture and super skunk in gotham is a great friggin' episode title or some sort of stoner rock band so here is uh the rousing monologue at the end of the book 
could have come directly from Joe Friday's mouth. Oh, yes. I was, I thought the same thing. Why do you do it? You do it to get stoned. You do it to get wasted. You do it to get smashed, canned, destroyed, out of it, off your face, out of your head. All expressions meaning you give up control of yourself. We're all blessed with a conscious mind capable of anything. We could solve all the problems of the world with that mind, yet you want it to get smashed and ripped and wasted. Well, not me. I want my mind in the best possible condition, the way it's meant to be, with me in control. And that's why I'll never take drugs. And again, this is from a 15-year-old. <laughs> no 15-year-old, even the most mature 15-year-old, talks like that no to me the weird thing was it's like portrayed as the 15 year old went on this journey and those are his thoughts that he came up with like does he have like batman talks to him about drugs very briefly of like like people use them as shortcuts it's like where's that coming from all these thoughts he has that he's throwing out there during that talk I think the shortcuts thing is in the next story. I think oh, yeah. it gives Tim a different story here because that is at least a somewhat more nuanced version than the Batman we get here, who's just like, yeah. "Don't." <laughs> I hate junkies. That that's pretty much it. Woodrow has a more nuanced view on everything here. I mean, and yes, he is flat out quoting marijuana advocacy pamphlets about you know hemp is this miracle product that can do this and this and this and isn't it great it's like it's no more the things that a real person who isn't reading from this pamphlet and really really wants to legalize pot would actually ever say but Woodrow at one point when all of these disenfranchised people who Woodrow has given work in his underground pot farm he says you know give a man a job give him a little dignity and he'll follow you to hell it's like that's not incorrect it's just being said by a plant monster who's forcing them to live underground what Bigley Woodrow is weird everybody high but he also wants to make a perfect being with poison ivy but then nothing comes of that really it's just is like well that's why she's there I guess but like there's a better story in here that's all I'm saying meanwhile we, we also are cutting in between Tim and a kid who we assume had some sort of nervous breakdown and has just come back to school and now is, you know, some other kid is trying to peer pressure him into smoking pot for no particular reason. And it's just like, and then he goes full reefer madness after one inhalation, being crazy hallucinations, which is a weird thing for, you know, oh, he has meant uh, uh, some sort of mental illness to begin with, and now one puff and he's suddenly seeing demons. Uh, I will say this for the, the relationship here. Tim Drake bisexual was never at least in this story not really hidden. No. You haven't even read any of the Titans stuff. Wait until you read any of the, the a little bit of the Young Justice, but very much the Titan stuff with Tim Drake and Connor Kent. It's so obvious. Yeah. I 
We'll just throw out a positive note of this book. If you like rope mechanics and you like Batman with basically just a hook attached to a rope, I really like the art and how he uses it. I like how he gets the battering around the steering wheel and attaches it to the lantern so the steering wheel just tears off of the car. To me, that's a nice little action scene as well as I love that it shows him swinging and there's almost a full page of him almost like a gymnast with the rope pulling him up and he's got the guy that he's grabbed in his other hand who's just a shadow next to him. I like the art and those of how they use that and utilize some pretty good action scenes for just that's his thing he's got a grappling hook. I thought those were very nice so I'm not completely negative that's all I just wanted to add. Oh. I think the art here is, generally speaking, pretty good. I, I like Dave Taylor. This is a strange little artifact. And it's not like you could have gotten away with doing much else in a code-approved book. But it's weird. I have one art note, and it's that... Batman has his logo on the bottom of his boots. I noticed that too, which I thought Jim Lee put the logo on the bottom of Batman's boots, but is this after that? This would have been no, this is well before this is six years before that. That's a little detail that, depending on the artist, pops up every now and then. Seems like a thing that you wouldn't want because. Uh, you know, you'd have to like, you'd have to special order those and, you know, some subsidiary of the Wayne Foundation is, is going to be saddled with that order. And I mean, that's the thing you could trace. Come on. Yeah, this is just a side note that the viewers will have no interest. The listeners will have no interest in whatsoever. But once again, how I'm reminded that I love my husband and we're soulmates I was reading this and I saw that and had the exact same thought 100% down to the thought process. I'm like, you have to special order those? Is he casting them himself? So I'm just reminded that even if the dark history of Poison Ivy makes me cringe, I found my soulmate. No. What you don't realize is that Harold was also a master cobbler. Ah, there we go. I'm going with that. That's that my answer sense. to that one. Uh, he builds cars. He makes boots. Yeah, but you'd still have to special. Even if you're a cobbler, cobblers don't make. I, I don't know how many. How you, I don't know if you've fallen down the rabbit hole of watching cobblers on YouTube make and repair boots, which all of the YouTube stars who have channels where they just repair shoes and boots, really buff guys. Every single one of them. Interesting thing. But you get a sole, you order it, and they put it in. They do not design the sole. So still, somebody's special ordering those. This has been cobbler talk. (laughs) I I got nothing on that one. I don't have anything else. Does anyone else? Darling, do you have anything else? What's with Poison Ivy's mold that sometimes is a star? Weird artistic touch. Yeah, I noticed that too, and I was like, "That's, that's a choice. It's a bad one. Yeah, not saying it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my last note. I don't have anything else, so that means it's time for Batman Shadows of the Bat Leaves of Grass on the big board. All right, so 
the three stories from our Ivy episode are 155, 151, and up slightly higher, uh, 120. So the highest of those is Everyone Loves Ivy, the Tom King, Ivy Takes Over the World story. Mm, that weren't good. Right, but is this better? Because that one, Poison Ivy takes over the world through produce. And here, Woodrow wants to take over the world with marijuana. We're in the right territory because this is this is weird and not altogether unsuccessful, but it is not in any shape or form good but the art is is passable good to passable passable to good so i i think the 130s the 140s i mean i just looking down for instance you were just talking about son of the demon is at 131 that's batman as rambo yeah i enjoyed that more than i enjoyed this and 132 club of heroes you must have gotten me on a very good day for Club of Heroes <laughs> to be that low. Because, yeah, I feel like Club of Heroes should be considerably higher than that. Uh, look, I've, I've been very slow for Morrison. That's, that's all I can say. But it's also um, T.H. Williams. I, I know, and I, I love Williams, but that, it, didn't, it didn't speak to me, Matt. But then, fuck, we get down to... Holy Terror continues to be disrespected by this podcast. Where is Holy Terror now? Uh, 149. Why is that? That is better than so much of the stuff above it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, in all honesty, that should probably be up around in the one teens. We're, get, we're gonna re rank you one day, Holy Terror. You deserve it. I'm trying to find something that I would definitely say is better than this in this kind of area. Is better um, than this? Or... I mean, I'd probably reread this before I read read Shaman at 137. Yes. And I th- I think Luther, you're driving me sane, is a- as weird, but it's more fun. Yes. So below, in between, so we're we're somewhere in between 134 and 137. 135 is that two issues of Batman fighting the giant pseudo-Batman, the three ghosts of Batman. And 136 is Batman Adventures number nine, where it's the Batman and Rupert Thorne little diary one-off. How about right above Shaman? Uh, sounds good to me. So it is our new 137. And our final story of the night is Flying High. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 561. The writer is Doug Mensch, pencils by Gene Colan, inks by Bob Smith and Ricardo Villagran, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Len Wein. The cover date is April of 1986. Jason Todd meets Rena, the new girl at Gotham Junior High, and he chooses to try to save her from the school bully and his cronies. 
Very... My first thought, and sorry to interrupt, Matt, but no. my first thought in this book on the very first page, the very first panel, Jason Todd, real, real horny. This is pre-crisis Jason Todd. This is so very 80s. And a lot of this is hello, fellow teenagers, sort of dialogue. I cannot think any child in 1986, any junior high school or so well, which is, I'm never comfortable when the Robins are younger than 13 or 14. Let's be, let's be fair. But any 12 year old is thinking of seeing a pretty girl and calling her a fox and saying she's sending me to the heights. That is what a 40-year-old man thinks a 15-year-old thinks. Who's that thunderbolt, and why is she electro-frying me? Yeah, that's some Bob Haney-level teenage talk. Not to discourage this, and I don't want to discourage this era. This is the comic bullies. Like, if you had one comic in your bag... And the ones the bullies found then mercilessly beat you and made fun of you for reading comics. Like, this is that one of just like really on the nose to me. Really? You think these are cool? And yet, Batman's take on drugs is more nuanced here than it was in that issue of Shadow of the Bat. Which isn't that so. Okay, I read this one third, and this is like horrible commentary but i found it super interesting it's like why did batman go back in time what happened (laughs) i would expect them to almost be flipped somewhat like as i was reading the other one it was like i would expect this to be in the 80s pop art and like this must be from that era and then like oh we get a little bit more nuanced now that we've moved forward a decade or two yeah it's because here it's not he's anti-drug not because it's just illegal and that's the way it is but because for him it it impairs the mind and the body and batman is about the pinnacle of human achievement and about everything you can to improve yourself so this doesn't work for him and as said he views this as people looking for a shortcut to happiness versus doing the work i'm not at all saying that that is necessarily that that is a correct opinion, but it is a far more nuanced opinion than no drugs are illegal and bad. It reminds me of of a very early season of South Park where just Randy says to Stan, you know, when you're doing drugs, just you feel you feel content and you feel bored and you should be doing something interesting instead of doing drugs. This is only half an issue because this is back at the period when Detective had Green Arrow backups. And like I went, I was like, does this get continued? Like, I don't know if Rena ever comes back, if she becomes a regular supporting character for this very brief period. Because you gotta remember, this is 561. So we are nine issues away from Crisis on Infinite Earths completely wiping this version of Jason Todd out of existence. This is the Jason Todd who was still a circus acrobat. When he was still the cloniest clone of dick grayson batman plays very small part he and jason have that talk you get one page of him 
beating up a guy who is he's not a, this guy's not like a weed dealer this guy is clearly dealing like heroin because he's he's cutting powder so it's like batman just goes in and there's nothing to do with anything else going on in this story it's just like batman gets one page where he has to beat up a dealer just so batman does something in the issue meanwhile jason is basically meeting the girl and then following around these bullies and kind of tormenting them I mean, they're doing illegal stuff, but Jason is just like, hey, I'm going to just kind of poke at you versus I'm friggin' Robin. I should be able to take these guys out. No problem. But he keeps letting the main boy like run away and then play. He's like a cat playing with a mouse. It reminded me of the Tim Burton Batman. Of it's from Batman, the opening of that movie when Batman's on the roof, and he's like, I'm gonna watch these guys for a while. Let me hop down and scare them. And he's like, Let me watch them for a little longer. Like, aren't you sure you'd be stopping crime? Like, no, no, J- Jason lets them break into this drugstore. And then when Jason goes to stop them in the drugstore, he just drops through a window, like, breaks through the window. It's like, this guy's already broken into this poor druggist's place. And now, Jason, you're doing that. Do you think this guy has superhero insurance? Probably not. Well, clearly that guy's not on the up and up. If he, again, I don't know if this is because of the comic book code, they weren't allowed to say amphetamines with his thumb over the label, but he's moving a lot of bottles of amphetamines (laughs) from that drugstore. So I don't know. I think there's something shady going on there. So I want to chime in with the history of uh, of Rena here. She has a total of six appearances that conclude in Batman 399, at which point Jason Todd breaks up with her with the line, maybe we don't have to see each other every night, huh? And then that's it. Yeah, because then 400 is the final pre-crisis Batman story. After that, the wave of antimatter that was the crisis on infinite earth passes over the DC universe and Rena ceased to exist or never came to Gotham. Let's let's give her that. Rena was still positive. Yeah. She just didn't come to Gotham. Her family was smart enough to not come to the murder capital of the world. Not just the country, the world. Uh, But according to the Batman files-blog.tumblr, um, she's never really giving or given any more uh, characterizations. She just shows up on dates with uh, Jason Todd for those handful of issues. It is still probably Jason's longest relationship. <laughs> oh, poor Jason. Random comment. This has just bothered me. Page 14, second to last panel. Robin is clearly wearing green shorts, not his green unitard. I went back and thumbed through it and it's like, yeah, that's the Robin costume. It's like the unitard with nothing. And then that one panel, it's very clear that he's wearing shorts. That bothered me immensely. And we get the bit here where, you know, Rena, you know, asks Jason to go and get high and he meets her and they talk. And it turns out that she's never actually done drugs, thus maintaining her as safe and virtuous and thus able to be Jason's love interest. Very of the code, very of the 80s. I don't want everybody else to think that I'm not cool. Jeez. 
they, somebody could, you know, you live with a millionaire. You don't have to worry about, you know, being cool because you can go back to your mansion. Some of us don't have that. I will say when Robin like confronts one of the numerous times when they're actually in the drugstore and his line to Robin is, you don't scare me, punk. I took karate classes. And last night, Robin was punching the Joker in the head. Yeah. Let's see. But also goes back to what 14 year like the how this whole conversation started. That's what a 14 year old says. Punk. Like, is he older than Robert? Like, is he like he's been kept back like Kearney on The Simpsons, who in Aww. 1990 something remembers the bicentennial. Those tall ships really boosted the country's spirit after Watergate. While the dialogue, I don't think, was any better, Jason and Rena's awkward flirting is very teenager. It's very clumsy and it's very stilted. And it's like, okay, I don't know if you're intending it to come off that way, but it sure is. The last panel of this one's hard for me. Of him doing the Yahoo jump. Wee! <laughs> Would literally end like a Bazooka Joe comic. <laughs> like, ah. Hey, everybody, we're going to get laid. <laughs> Yahoo! It may not be Abracadabra, but as magic words do, so it'll do. There's not much to this story. Literally, it's boy meets girl, boy talks to Batman. Boy tries to get girl. Bullies show up. Boy fights bullies. Boy gets girl. Which, it is a little tepid in its story, but I would argue, unlike the previous one we just discussed, it's a concise plot. It's, again, I would argue, while there's a lot more you could do this with these topics, and obviously it's a different era, they're constrained by things, at least you read it and you make sense and you're like, I understand motivations. This is good. I still have questions about the Poison Ivy story that I don't think I'm ever going to get answers to. I think it's just that's it's like rub that I'm going to be up at night. Like, but like, did you want a baby or do you want to get everybody high? What's going on? Why not both? He was constantly stoned. He might have wanted one at one moment and one at the other. He's an evil plant monster man. That's just lazy writing. <laughs> Jason Woodrow is kind of the worst. By kind of, I mean, he is the worst. We got anything left to say on this one? This no. 15 pager? Yeah, I think this one, th- th- this is pretty much it for this one. That means it's time to put Detective Comics number 561 flying high on the big board. So we just put leaves of grass at 137. Uh, it's got to go below that. Yeah. And generally speaking, you know, one of the things that we love is a concise story. We will take a tightly packed one issue over a decompressed six any day of the week. But despite this being really point A to point B to point C, there's not much to it. Yeah, yeah, you got to say something in that one issue, right? Another one where it's just sort of one issue and it's just kind of there 
was 144, which is the Delta connection, the Batman Swamp Thing team up from Brave and the Bold 176 with Catwoman's sister who appears just to die. We we can't get too much below that. And I'm I'm inclined to put this below Holy Terror because get that had ambition. But you know, you start getting down, we'll say 150, 160 ish, and we get we get down into things that we actively hated. This is not quite that bad. This is just this is just nothing. Yeah. It's nothing is better than being something bad. I actually think we maybe put it right below Holy Terror, make it the new 151, because below that is when you start getting into some problem territory. Well, you got 154, which is at DC Superstars Huntress thing, which was likewise just not much of anything. Right. That was exposition. That was, again, 15 pages of exposition. It was like, and this is how Catwoman and Batman got together. And this is their baby. And this is her growing up. And this is how Catwoman died. And now this is the Huntress. Ta-da. Right. And although I, I'm wondering if that one... Uh, yeah, it was pretty, at least. I was going to say... How is Harley and Ivy, which was those three random Harley and Ivy issues that were put together as a miniseries above that? I was like, oh, because it's the Bruce Tim art. It looks real nice. Fucking Paul Dini. Maybe below that, above your face is your fortune, that golden age Catwoman story where she went straight, quote unquote, only not really because she was trying to you know, come up with some dirt on the wealthy to take them out and did that by being a working in a salon. Yeah, I think that works. New 153? New 153. And I forget which story it was that we finished up. Amazon helpfully gave me a teaser for the next arc, which was going to be on Film Freak. So I think we're going to have to do a Film Freak episode, Matt. We can we can work on some film freak, absolutely. Uh, well, we'll schedule that for uh, Oscars weekend. <laughs> yes, that works. That looks like it does it for the night. Uh, Abigail, thank you for stopping by. One quick update for the fans at home: Will's Comicsology is now up to nine thousand four hundred and seventy-nine comics. Which, for the listeners at home who are keeping track. That means he has purchased roughly a thousand comics in less than a year. If I'm looking at this right, because I believe you read about eight thousand the last time I was on this show. Uh, no comment. So when I wonder why I can't remodel the kitchen, I think I know why. Uh, look, it's actually all of those uh, copies of Sweet Paprika for you. So oh yeah. I wish there was a thousand issues of Sweet Paprika. Okay. Well, that is it for this week. Uh, next week, it's three stories featuring Clayface. Just, you know, cause. <laughs> Wasn't anything else coming out. And I was like, I want to do Clayface stories. So we're doing Clayface. Uh, we would like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote. June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. 
June, come in. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> As a fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. My best friend. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Fat Chat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and a Comics XF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.